It might seem like a, an unusual way to begin a message, but uh, I try to get into the Fit Club three times a week. After my uh, 17-year-old hawk died and I was no longer heading to the field with her on a regular basis to find rabbits and pheasants, my uh, informal exercise program came to an end. And around the same time, my hip started aching whenever I stood in one place any length of time, and I joked that I wasn't even fit to be a Walmart greeter. But my need for exercise... of Fit Club for years, and I soon found myself in a routine of stopping by the club on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoons. Now, I have to admit, I'm really glad that I was pushed into doing so. I feel better. I've lost a little weight. I've made a lot of new friends, and I've had numerous opportunities to share my faith in the steam room and hot tub. <laughs> I know you love that image. <laughs> Well, a month ago, I became uh, upset with Fit Club. I uh, was upset when they put a new ad on the billboard next to the club. And the choice of words was obviously intentional and could be taken a couple of ways. The more I thought about it, the more offended I became. But I was hesitant to say anything about it because I wondered if I should have even noticed the sexual double entendre. The biblical phrase, to the pure, all things are pure, kept going through my head. Eventually I said something to it, about it to the manager. And he asked me to write a note to the owner telling him how I found the sign offensive and that it made me uncomfortable. And uh, I was hesitant even to come to the club because of it. But should the sign have made me uncomfortable? After all, to the pure, all things are pure. And isn't that what the Bible means? When it says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Doesn't that mean if we're pure, we'll never see anything dirty or sinful in the things around us? That everything will be beautiful and we will be totally oblivious to sin. After all, the Bible says we are to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And that we're to let our minds dwell on things that are honorable and right and pure and holy and of good repute. So does this verse mean that if we're really pure, we will have so shut sin out of our lives that we won't even see it anymore? That if we watch Dirty Dancing, it'll look clean? Well, if that's the case, I'm afraid I fail. I saw something dirty in the message on the billboard. And I really didn't want to admit it. 
Now, I'm not as dirty as those who see something dirty in everything, I assume. You've known people who twist anything that's said into something filthy. But did I see something I wouldn't have seen if I was really pure? This is what Paul was talking about when he said to the pure, all things are pure. Was he giving us a standard to use when examining our own hearts and a proverb to quote when others read something dirty into what we say? Is this what he was telling Titus? To find out, we need to look again at the context of that statement. We're studying in Paul's letter to Titus, and he's been talking about the need for elders who can exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And the need was great because the churches of Crete were being influenced by rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers who needed to be silenced. Paul noted that most of them were of the circumcision. They were the Judaizers, Jewish Christians who tried to force Jewish practices, myths, and man-made commandments on the Gentile Christians. Paul said such men had to be reproved severely. And then he said this in Titus 1, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now, given the context, I think it's obvious Paul wasn't talking about the way we look at things. He wasn't suggesting that if our minds are pure, we will view everything through naive and innocent eyes. He had the Judaizers in mind here and was addressing a problem they were causing. They were trying to make the Gentile Christians feel guilty for not abiding by the ceremonial law. They insisted that uncircumcised believers were defiled. They were dirty in God's eyes. They didn't follow the Jewish law. They didn't watch what they ate or what they touched. That issue was whether Christians needed to become Jews and follow ceremonial law to be clean and to stay clean. Were the Judaizers right? Were the Christians defiled? Or were they the pure ones? And the Judaizers actually the ones who were defiled. Well, Paul exposed the truth by painting a picture of the pure and the defiled. And he begins with the pure. Let's go back to the first part of verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. 
Now, to understand this, we've got to look at the word Paul used for pure. He didn't use the word hagnos, a word that comes from the same root word we translate as holy. A word that refers to something that is pure from any defilement, something that has never been contaminated or stained, something that is in and of itself holy and has always been pure. That's not the word he used. Instead, he used the word katharos, which refers to something that has been cleansed, something that was once dirty and then made clean. And that, of course, describes us. When we became Christians, we were cleansed. The stain of sin was washed away and we were made absolutely pure in God's eyes, the only eyes that really count. Through the blood of Christ, we were made clean. We were cleansed. The stain of sin was washed away. And it's through the blood of Christ that we are kept clean. When we became Christians, we acknowledged the fact that we could not make ourselves clean through obedience. And we recognize that we don't keep ourselves clean through obedience. We're kept clean by trusting in the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And if we are trusting in Christ, nothing can defile us. If we're trusting in Christ, nothing can defile us. Nothing can make us unholy. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, the Judaizers didn't understand this. Yes, they had accepted the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, but they apparently still thought it was being a good Jew that initially made them acceptable to God. And that following the Jewish law was what kept them acceptable. They thought the wrong foods, or contact with a defiled object would defile them. And under the ceremonial law, that was true. But Paul makes it clear that if we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, nothing in and of itself can defile us. Because nothing in and of itself is defiling he made this clear in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Everything God has made is good. And whatever is received with gratitude and sanctified by God's word and prayer is acceptable. And there is therefore no need to reject anything in the fear of contamination. That is not to say, however, that everything is good for us. 
For as Paul also stated in 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. We no longer live under the law, so nothing is unlawful. But not everything is good for us. So God has given us his word and prayer to enable us to discern what is good for us, what is profitable, what will edify, and the wisdom to know what is not good for us. As we then walk in the light of his word, making wise choices, yet without the fear of defiling ourselves, we are kept clean. Christ will keep us clean, and nothing outside of us can take away the purity he has given to us. That is walking by faith, covered by the blood. That is a man who is pure and to whom all things are pure. And that is the picture of a Christian under grace. So who then is defiled? What does he look like? Let's read on. Picking up the second half of verse 15. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now, the first thing we notice is that those who are defiled are those who don't believe. Those who don't believe Christ died for their sins and have therefore never accepted the grace of God. If a man doesn't believe and has never been cleansed by the blood of Christ, he bears the stain of sin. And that stain is going to contaminate everything he touches. It's going to affect everything he does. Nothing will be pure to him because everything will be defiled, stained by his own sin. And since both his mind and his conscience are defiled, whatever he thinks and whatever he decides will be tainted by sin. Now, he may think himself a religious man, and profess to know God. But if his heart hasn't been cleansed, eventually his deeds will deny that such a relationship exists. Eventually he will do something that will reveal just how detestable he is to a holy God. And his disobedience will become obvious. His righteousness will then be judged as worthless, a counterfeit. The word was used to describe a counterfeit coin. It will become evident 
that he lacks the capability of doing anything really good in the absolute sense of the word. Because he's not good. That's the picture of a defiled man. It's a man who refuses to accept the grace of God and who therefore fails miserably in his attempts to become righteous. It describes the Judaizers of Paul's day, and it describes those in our day who think the way to become righteous is by obeying a never-ending list of rules and regulations, who think they can earn their standing before God by drawing up a list of things to avoid, things that are defiling, and then by following that list. That sounds religious, but it's doomed to failure. All it will do is reveal just how defiled a man is, apart from God's grace. Now, again, that's not to suggest that through a study of God's word and prayerful thought, that we might not determine there are some things we should avoid, that there are some things that are not profitable for us or for society at large. But no one can become pure by following a list of rules, and no one can remain pure through obedience. The only way to be pure is to be washed. In the blood of Jesus. And the only way to stay clean is to acknowledge your need for continual cleansing and to then trust your Savior to keep you clean. Does this make sense? This is fundamental to our understanding of what Jesus did for us. And why we need his sacrifice to be made clean. But it's something that is so hard for even Christians to wrap their head around. Because we really think when push comes to shove, we made ourselves clean by being good and coming to church. And we keep ourselves clean by following a list that mom and dad taught us. Now, that list may be good, but it's not that list that saves you. And it's not that list that keeps you clean. Jesus is the only way to be made pure. The only way. And if you desire to be made pure, to be made clean, I invite you to come and express your desire to be washed in the blood of the Lamb by allowing your body to be washed in the waters of Christian baptism.